The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we are thankful for opportunity to come into your presence and talk to you, the Almighty. We do this so frequently, so, so freely, that it is sometimes easy to miss the fact that we are creatures, as we sung in that song, they're made from dust. And we get to speak to the Almighty who made us. We get to bring ourselves and our concerns and our, our thoughts and put them in front of you and, and converse with you about them and make requests of you and hear from you, which is remarkable. And made possible and, and actually desired by you because of what you've done in Christ to open up the door to your throne room, inviting us to come and ask and to receive from you grace and mercy in our time of need. So we do that regularly and we do it again here now this morning. We come into your presence and ask you for what we need. This morning, right here in this moment, what we need are ears to hear and hearts that are open. And we need a clearly expressed word with power behind it, spirit power behind it, so that we would be different at the end of this, more like what you mean us to be. Conformed more to the image of Christ. We need your help for that, Lord. So we ask you here in this moment of need to give us grace, to make us new, to mercifully remove barrier that keeps us locked in and away from you, to remove sin, to remove distraction, to remove spiritual oppression, to remove whatever barrier there, there may be that would keep us confined and isolated. Remove that, that we can draw near and receive from you and be drawn towards you and made more like you. Please do that this morning, Father, by your Spirit, for the glory of the Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Today, the Sunday before Easter, is what the church calls Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus came into Jerusalem and was welcomed by crowds waving palm branches. This event is recorded in every gospel. We saw it relatively recently as we were working through the gospel of Luke. Every gospel writer records this event, but they all do it in a little different way and give us different details, different points of emphasis. So though we've seen it in Luke, we're now going to look at it in John, and we'll see some different things here from this account. We're doing it not just for the sake of knowing a little more history from a slightly different perspective, and we're not doing it just so as to celebrate something of the church calendar, recognize a, a tradition. What, what I hope, I, th I think we'll get from this, by God's grace, is some helpful instruction for us about God doing good to people through Jesus. 
a reminder that he does do good to us through Jesus and some helpful instruction, maybe correction about that, a reminder that will give us some perspective that I think can encourage us in the end when it may seem to us like he's not doing us good or at least not the kind of good that we want or think is actually good. So that's what I, I think will come out of this this morning. So we're going to consider today, but first a bit of context. John chapter 12, we're going to be this morning, comes on the heels of Jesus' final dramatic sign, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was an ordinary man who'd gotten sick and had died and been dead for four days. And Jesus came and called him out of the tomb and gave him new life again, which is presented to us in John as a sign, that is, an event that carries a message. It's a sign. In this particular case, it's, it's carrying a message that Jesus is the one who gives new life. He has the power. It's found in him. He's the one who gives new life. And we see it physically, dramatically, a stunning, visible display as this one gives new life to this dead man, which is a sign, a message about how he's the one who has the power. He's the one and where it's found. He, he gives new spiritual life to spiritually dead men and women. He gives life for the soul, life of a relationship with God, provides spiritual life. That's, that's the message and the sign. And a lot of people saw the event, even if they missed the sign. They, they saw it, though they didn't really get it. And lots of people then heard about it from those who saw it. There, there certainly was a whole bunch of word of mouth going on about this. Many people had heard about this, and many people then interpreted it, came to think of that he's the one. Surely he's the one who's sent to save us. He has that kind of power and that kind of compassion attitude. Surely he's the one sent to save us from all of our troubles and afflictions, in the words of Psalm 102, which we saw a couple weeks ago. He's the one sent to free the prisoners, free those who were doomed to die. So they're thinking, though they misunderstand how, that's what they're thinking. And so when the crowds who are gathered here at Jerusalem at this Passover time, this is the week of the Passover feast, the crowds who are there hear that Jesus is approaching and they respond to welcome him in. So let me read the passage. This is from John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, we see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. John chapter 12. I'm going to make two observations 
Who's the first? And, and these two observations, they, they, they overlap. They're a little bit um, like one goes part away into beginning to clear away some misunderstanding, and then the other one picks up there and then kind of clarifies. So there's, there's some connection between these two observations. But here's the first. Unless God opens our eyes, we will overlook the true nature of Jesus' kingship. Unless God opens our eyes, we will overlook the true nature of Jesus' kingship and, and the good that he has come as king to do. Verse 12 begins by mentioning this crowd, large crowd there at the feast, Nobody knows how many people were there, but some estimates say millions gathered at Jerusalem. It's hard to tell. But there would have been a massive crowd there. The city would have been packed, the surrounding countryside filled with campers and all the neighboring villages full up. Lots of people there. And, and while, of course, we're told down in verses 17 and 18 that the main reason that the crowd has come out here is because they'd heard about, it seen or heard about Lazarus, that's not the only reason. Jesus didn't raise Lazarus in a vacuum. There's a large crowd here, many of which would have come from the north, from Galilee, where Jesus just spent three years traveling around, teaching many things about himself, and displaying in many varied ways incredible compassion and unheard of power. He'd healed people, he'd chased out demons, he'd been doing many things and saying many things and, and showing many things, performing many things for years now. And a lot of those folks were also around. So when they heard about Lazarus, it was kind of like, like the, the final piece that drew them and large crowds out to see Jesus. But they came to see him with more than just curiosity. The crowd that gathers come out to do something in particular. They're, they're doing something based on how they're perceiving Jesus and what they think he's come to do, what they think he's been sent to do. Verse 13 says, they took branches of palms and went out to meet him. Why did they all grab palms? Well, the palm palm branch at, at that time, in, not just in, in Israel, but in surrounding cultures too, was a general sign of triumph, generally speaking. And for Jews in particular, it was almost a sign of national pride because of how the palm branch was associated with, with some religious festivals within Judaism and because of how in the past it had been used to celebrate particular military or political victories. It was on some of their coins. It was kind of a, of a nationalistic symbol, maybe a bit like today the, the thistle represents Scotland or the color orange represents the Netherlands. It's not that there's only orange in the Netherlands. It's not that there's only palms in Israel, but that color or palms in those places mean something about the people and the nation. It's their, it's their symbol. So for them, it wasn't just a decoration. It was a bit of nationalistic pride and, and victory even. So they have in their hands and they're waving as they went out to meet him, which is careful language. Not just went out, but they went out to meet him. It's an important detail. 
when a, a dignitary or a ruler or a champion or a conquering hero of some sort would, would come to visit a place, would approach a town, the populace would go out to welcome them or him. We still do it today. When the presidential motorcade's coming, we go line the streets. When the, the victorious sports team, we, we go meet him at the airport, have a parade. We still do that sort of thing today. It's, it's the way that you honor, it's the way that you respect, celebrate, cheer on a victory or a champion or a hero. That's what they're doing with their feet. They're going out to meet. That's what they're waving with their hands, a, a symbol of national pride and celebration and victory. And then what's on their lips? A particular cry, continually crying out. You can picture the scene as they're making this, their way on this road down the, the hill to the city, crowds packed on both sides of the street, crying out continually, Hosanna. Literally a request, save now. But by this time, it, it meant more than just a request. It was kind of more of a declaration. You are the one who saves now. Less a request, more a statement. Celebration and honor. You're the one who saves. Praise be to you, our champion. Blessing be upon you, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. You, the King of Israel. There it is. That's what all of this is saying together. The words, what they have in their hands, the, the process of going out. Glorious are you, honored are you, praiseworthy are you, blessed are you, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, our King. They make no mistake here, they're, they're referring to Psalm 118, which is talking about the Messiah. They, they are very clear that this one is the Son of David, sent by God Almighty with power. They just saw it with power to save. He's the king. What's he going to do? There's only one possible answer to that, given their context. He has been sent by God as a mighty, powerful deliverer to save from oppression, to save from bondage, to save from Rome. Rome. This is, you couldn't have had a, probably a million people lining the road, let's just say a couple hundred thousand, shouting. And in the same town right over there, there's a Roman political official with some soldiers, and they hear, what, what did they hear? What did they hear? What did the Pharisees hear? At the very end, they're worried about this. What everybody heard uh-oh. Here's a wild celebration of triumph based on the crowd's understanding of Jesus, the King, and what he's come to do. He has come, finally, to address the main problem here. We are under the thumb of Rome for about another five minutes. Thank God. Hosanna. Because all of us are going to rally behind you and we're going to fix this thing right now. That's what's going on. 
God has sent his king finally to set the captives free to address our biggest problem in life, to fix the Roman problem. So lead us, turn us into a force, a power, an army, rally us to a war of liberation, deal with our troubles, the problems that pain us, the afflictions that that pressure us, Deal with Rome and its taxation and its military occupation and its political subjugation. Deal with them. And for us, we think similarly. Deal with the problems that actually matter. That's what we think. That's what they're thinking. Deal with what matters. Deal with financial shortage and political instability and deal with marital discord and deal with health problems and deal with poverty and deal with racial injustice. Deal with what matters. Thank God, we think. God sent a Savior to deal with what matters, what's important, what we're pressed under. Deal with our academic struggles and our social loneliness and deal with our, with our isolation. And deal with our awkwardness and our fears. Deal with what matters. And we mistakenly say, praise God, he has finally sent a king to do it. And we're totally missing the boat. These folks are totally totally missing the boat. Now, does God care about all those things? Yes. Will God deal with all those things? God will. Remember, we talked about this in the Psalms too. God will, in fact, deal with all of that, dot, 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 eventually. That's the point we made in preaching through the Psalms. Yes. We should not for one minute think God does not care about poverty and racial injustice and marital discord. That's irrelevant to him. No, no, no. That's important. And he will deal with all of that in his way, in his time. Yes. But that's not yet the nature of his kingship. And that's the problem. He has not come initially. He has not arrived at this moment to make right everything right now. He has not come initially to address all those things which to us seem to matter. He has his eyes on a bigger problem. The big problem. And he will deal with that problem in a way that is glorious and that gains a throne for himself in the process. It's an entirely unexpected way he's going to deal with this. We're going to come to that eventually here. But in the first point, we're clearing away some of the brush to see what we are, how we are mistaken often. Nobody understood what was going on. You get a million people in town and only one guy gets it. Not even his closest disciples. Verse 18 says that they didn't even get it. It wasn't until later, after the cross, after the resurrection, after the ascension, it wasn't until later, you remember from Luke, the numerous passages where Jesus opened their eyes and showed them the scriptures. Later they came to understand these things were written about him. But God had to open their eyes. Nobody got it. Not even his disciples not even us today. Indeed, we are, we are post this event. We get a lot more, for sure, for sure. 
But when you think about this, two ways. Are, are, we, are we as blind as these folks? No. Can we be blind as these folks? Yes. For sure. Most of the world overlooks the main purpose of Jesus' coming. Most of the world talks about Jesus and, and, and shapes its expectations, its understanding, its perception of Jesus as, as related to the problems that matter. Most of the world does that. And his disciples, we, we do too in different ways. We often overlook, we overlook his main purpose and instead hope and expect him to deal with all those things. And, and if, sometimes if you just look at your prayer list or think about your prayer life, that kind of kind of gives you the answer. We quite naturally assume that what is most important to us is most important. And that's bound to create a misunderstanding. And where misunderstanding comes, disappointment and disillusionment and frustration. You put that thing on your prayer list, I've done this countless times, put that thing on your prayer list and, and, and don't you in your mind know how that's supposed to get resolved. You know it. Here's my friend who needs a job. Obvious answer, give him a job. Duh. And he doesn't. And he doesn't. And he doesn't. And doesn't and doesn't and doesn't and doesn't. Here's, here's, here's my friend who is deathly sick. Answer, heal. Duh. And he doesn't. And doesn't, and doesn't, and doesn't, and doesn't, and doesn't, and then he dies. What? It, we can live in the same spot, too, where, where we think, if you're the king and you're present, here's the stuff that you should be dealing with, the stuff that matters, the big things. And where, mis where that misunderstanding creeps in, the disappointment is right behind it, and sometimes discontent and unbelief. It doesn't work. Why bother? He doesn't care, or he isn't interested, or he doesn't love me, or I'm a loser, otherwise he'd listen to me. As long as we continue to assess ourselves and him as king with a mistaken view of reality and importance... We're going to miss a lot, and we're going to remain puzzled and disappointed and upset. He's come to focus on something else. Something that's more important. The great need that we all face, the great need of every single one of us. You, you know the answer to this. The great need is related not to the things out here. The great need is related to right in here. My heart and its allegiance. Someone's once said, and it, it's a, a very fair description, that each of us has, a, has a, a throne right in the center of our chest. And someone's always sitting on that. Someone reigns. And by nature, that someone is me. 
every single one of us, we all raise our hands. By, by nature, the one on the throne there is me, and that's my biggest problem. The main purpose for which God sent his king was to reorder the inner lordship, the inner reign of people. To get the throne right. He's out to reorder that rule, to reorder that allegiance. That's why he sent Christ, and that remains Christ's prime main focus. And if you're not a Christian at this moment, it's important to hear this. Because it may, if you think about this from a different angle, it may explain a whole lot. It, it may explain of I, I'm, I'm not a Christian, but I've been like coming to God kind of like trying him out to see, is he real? Is he there? And, and he keeps not doing what I think one would do if he was real and there and cared. Well, m maybe the, part of this understanding here is for you to realize, perhaps, I'm, I'm coming to use him rather than coming to him. Maybe you need to come to him and say, here's me. Do with me what you will. Take the throne. So if you're not a Christian, maybe it's important to hear that, but Christian, we need to hear that. Same goes for us. We too need God's regular, regular, eye-opening grace to realize this. We, we are all like, I'm sure you've done this, where you've been studying or reading something when you're really too tired and you read the same paragraph over and over again. And like the third time through, you realize, I think I read this paragraph before. <laughs> and if, you're, if one's watching you, you, you look like the eyes going like... <sighs> we, we walk through life before Christ like that so often. I think I've heard this before. I think, yeah. And then dozing off. To perk up and read it again. We regularly need God's eye-opening grace to see it, awake, perceive it, take it in, grow in it, and walk in it. That what he's about is the throne within here and all of the circumstances. Does God care about the circumstances? Does God care about our, our health and our marriages? Yes and amen and absolutely. Yes and amen and absolutely because he cares about you. Yes. But we have to realize he is not remotely interested in fixing your marriage with, remaining, with you remaining on the throne. In fact, he probably can't even fix your marriage with you remaining on the throne. Because you on the throne is the problem in your marriage. The main focus in, in all that God does, is he, is a, he is oriented towards the orientation of our hearts to establish the reign of the king here. First, He's after our maturity, our growth into Christ-likeness. And all that's going on around us, all of our circumstances, our tools in his hand to work on that. And so sometimes he may decide in his own wisdom and power that poverty is what I need for this. 
or that wealth is what I need for this. And he'll do whatever is right for this, to get himself on the throne and me off of it, not because God is some egotistical show-off who can't share, but because he's good and a God of love and knows that the whole problem with me and everything that I touch is me and you. We reign over our lives weak and foolish and sinful. What a good God that he sent a king who himself alone is strong and wise and good and holy and pure, a God of love, to take out the corrupt ruler and put in a good king. Do you realize that? That God's about that all the time. If we did, it would undercut a whole lot of complaining and confusion and frustration. And maybe it would lead us to repentance. So that's, that's the caution here. The, the first point of looking at the vast misunderstanding of what it means that Jesus is king come to reign. The king sent in power to rule. There's a huge misunderstanding, and perhaps we clear away some of what we, we misunderstand, and that now we're ready to say, okay, so what is his kingship like? What's he like, and what's he doing as he's working on this throne here? So you see the overlap here. We've already partially answered that, that what he's like is he's a king who's a, a king of, of love about addressing the heart throne. We've seen a little bit of the overlap here, but... We're going to look at a little more of that and then how it is that he is and how it is that he does that in the second point. So here's the second observation. Fear not. The humble king is making a kingdom of righteous peace. Fear not. The humble king is making a kingdom of righteous peace. The crowd thinks Jesus is coming to do one thing. He's about something else, and he gives us a little bit of a clue, and as John writes it, gives us a little bit of a clue too. So you've got them singing and them out greeting him, and then you have 14, and Jesus found a young donkey. The other Gospels tell us the details about how he sent folks ahead to find the donkey, but here it's just Jesus versus the crowds. And really... There's a bit of a pause there at the beginning of 14, almost a bit of contrast. So it wouldn't be totally wrong to say, but Jesus found a young, young donkey. Or as one commentator says, Jesus, for his part, found a young donkey. So there's a difference here. Something's going on. So what's the difference? The king is coming and the crowd expects, get him a war horse and a sword so he could conquer. But Jesus deliberately obtained and then sat upon a baby donkey, which sometimes in our minds, we see it, we see it in countless little plays and whatnot. It looks kind of humorous, and we, we kind of think it's funny because it looks silly. But that wasn't the case back then. It was a symbol of peace and humility. 
Somebody rode, a, a teacher or ruler rode a donkey. He was symbolizing peace and humility. You know, you see a war horse is something else. He's not denying that he's a king. He's talking about what kind of a king he's come to be. Not a king of war, but a king of peace. Not a king of revolt, but a king of humility and a king of the heart. Which we see from the Zechariah 9 reference in our verse 15. It says, just as it was written, and then John points us back at the book of Zechariah, an Old Testament prophet. And the quote that we have here, like a lot of Old Testament quotes, is, is a bit of an amalgamation. It draws in a whole big verse and puts it shorter. And it's intended, as often is the case, to make us think not just of those particular words, but of the context, the whole scene around that particular verse. And if you look back at Zechariah 9, you can, you can look back at it later. In that chapter, you'd, you'd see an interesting scene. There's a whole lot of complicated, colorful imagery, all of which depicts God decisively saving his people and dealing with his people's enemies. And what's right in the middle of it? This, this quote. Verse 9 of Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice, your king comes, righteous and having salvation humble and mounted on a young donkey. A king indeed who is righteous and who saves, but who is humble. It says it right in the text in Zechariah, not, not to mention demonstrated with the donkey. He comes in humility and not might. And so the first thing to look at this is, this is something of the character of Jesus. Here's a, a king, every, every king everywhere, ever, attempts to display in a, in a palace or in a throne room or, or with garments. We saw God describing himself this way last, in the last psalm that we looked at. They, in many, many, many ways, attempt to show majesty and, and transcendence and power. And he is indeed a king who approaches his people like this. That's how people approach kings. But it's the king who approaches us. You can't see me ducking behind this thing, but eyes averted, you know, bowed. That's odd and sweet. This is the kind of king that you can deal with. This is the kind of king in the midst of, in some of those moments when you're off by yourself and you realize, I am a failure. I'm a, I'm a little bitty boy dressed up in man's clothes trying to act like something. I don't have any clue. If people saw me, they would know how weak I am and how, how empty I am, how, how frail I am. And here's a king who comes humble to me and says, come, 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 come. You will find me gentle and humble in heart. I've got kingly power. But you will find that I'm not going to stand on that. I'm going to come to you gentle and humble in heart. You can come and you can deal with a king like that. Not lording over, not boasting, 
but gentle. And he comes to make peace. The next verse in Zechariah 9, verse 10, talks about he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's the image of the kingdom of God that covers all of the earth and symbolizing this donkey. It's a kingdom of peace. And then in verse 11 of Zechariah, listen to this. As for you, my people, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. There's prisoners set free by the king. Because of the blood of my covenant. How how is all that going to happen? A humble king who makes peace and spreads a kingdom of peace all over the earth, who is righteous and saves his prisoner people by the blood of a covenant. How is all that going to happen? It it should have drawn the crowd up short when they saw him in that moment on a donkey riding. It should have made him think, that's Zechariah. Zechariah is about some interesting stuff. What is this? But it didn't. They, They missed it all. It wasn't until later that they saw it. Only after he was glorified did the disciples get it and realize that it had all been done, all written about, and all performed according to God's plan. Christ rode a donkey. That is a sign of humility. That is humbling in that moment especially, but far more humbling than that. How does all this fit together? Well, here's the, the one who commands the host of heaven, he who through, through whom all things anywhere were made, and they all hold together, who is the rightful king of creation. Who five days from now is going to stand before his accusers as they lay out lies, silent, like a lamb before the slaughter. Meek. He who gives men their every breath endured the scoffing and the mocking of the men who guarded him and of the fickle crowds. Hosanna becomes crucify him. And he took it all. He who makes atoms and molecules and binds them together to form wood and iron laid down, we sang about it this morning, and let people drive nails through his body into a wooden cross. He who raised Lazarus from the dead by the power of his voice humbled himself and became obedient to death, that final enemy. Look at all of that and see the humble majesty of Jesus. More than just dealing with us gently. These are gentle, humble actions and attitudes that have meaning. See, it's one thing for me to say, as I just did, that here's a king who comes to you like this, who comes to you in an understanding way and is very open to be approached and does not lord over. Yes and amen, that's a good thing. 
But more than that, here's a king who actually behaved in humility and behaved humbly in a way that matters, really matters. Because he dealt with the real problem in us by this humility. This king humbly shed his own blood to make a new covenant in which sin is atoned for and forgiven and peace is made between God and his people. A peace that is righteous. This is the heart of the gospel. And it is good news that God comes, his king comes to change what's wrong in here and he doesn't come in a way that demands from us more works but in a way that he humbly lays himself down and does the work and says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest, I will give you peace with God and then peace between each other in this new kingdom. That is good news. Which should lead us to the same place that Zechariah 9.9 leads us. Rejoice. Rejoice. Your king comes. Humbly to set up a kingdom of peace within. To make peace between me and God. That's good news and it should lead me to rejoice. 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 But, as soon as I say that, if I'm checking, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. That's actually not what our verse says. If you look at verse 15 in John, it says, fear not. Not rejoice, fear not. Why is that? Well, there's a difference there for sure, but if you think about the difference here, if you think about it, I think we end up coming back around to the same point different ways of dealing with us in our different emotional states. Think of it like this. When you're facing Roman occupation, our Romans are still here, or you've lost your job or a loved one is terribly sick and God comes to mind and you hear, like this morning, or you think about, oh, good, the king is here. And he can take care of this. He has power to. He, he's here to do what's right and to save me from evil Rome or to save me from disease. It's part of the curse or to, to save me from loneliness or sorrow. He, he's the king. He reigns. And you put it on your prayer list and you, and you pray that. And, then, and you, then you hear the answer is, in fact, I'm going to do you one better than that. I'm going to save you from your sin and make peace between you and God and bring you into his family, bring you into the kingdom. Deal with the real problem. How do you feel? Well, if you get sin and wrath and peace with God, then you feel... Oh, bless the Lord. 
Genuinely, honestly, I mean that. You, if, you, if you understand what that's about, if you understand the problem of me on the throne, and you see he's, he's fixed that, the problem of me in my sin and wrath before God and, and him making peace with God, oh, thank God. Bless the Lord. And then you think, so that's real, but then you think, however, I still don't have a job right now. Rome still oppresses. I'm still dying here. I still have trouble. I'm still threatened. I'm still stressed. I'm still worried. I'm still frightened about what's going to happen, about what I don't know about what's going to happen. About, as I look at the circumstances, I don't see a way to, to stretch the strings long enough and tie them together tight enough, and it seems like life is still going to come apart, and I don't know what to do about all that, and that's still a great problem. Fear not. Fear not. Jesus says, I have come humbly to put myself into your place to bear the wrath of God for you instead of you. So you can know with certainty. Don't doubt this. Don't be afraid that you are now a citizen of the kingdom. You are now a friend of this king. You are now a child in this family. You are now a lamb in this beloved flock beneath his shepherding care. And therefore you are an object of his attention and affection. Jesus would draw up near to you and say, an object of my attention and my affection, I see you, I see who you are, I see what you face, I get you, I know. And by my humility and by my humble action, I have formed an alliance with you that is inseparable, unending, and unconquerable. I am always at work in you and on you and always at work around you in all the circumstances and all the things that you are tempted to fear. I see them too. I know them too. Nothing is outside of my hand. You and everything that it ever is and ever will be, I have that too. And it is all in my hand for your good. How can this be for my good? I'm not saying that is good. Evil is. I'm saying I hold it for your good. Even the evil. Even through the evil, I'm going to do you good. So you can then know peace within your own heart. 
He makes peace between us and God. He makes peace between us and other people as we come into the kingdom with them as fellow citizens. And then he makes for peace within us. As we look at this throne within and say, he sits on it and reigns over me and over everything for my good. It's a peace that passes understanding because in some sense it makes no sense. The threat still remains. And so does he. And so does he. Indeed, in this world, we will have many troubles. We are encouraged to take heart because he has overcome all of them and he remains. He's our king. And he wants to say to your people, God, I'm yours. I'm yours. And I've got it all. So don't be afraid. Rejoice. Your king has come to you and has made peace between him and you and within you. May God open your eyes to see that again. Embrace it and hold on to it. Because this is the path to peace and joy. And it honors him too. Rejoice in that. Rejoice in him. Let me pray. Lord, will you open our eyes to see your goodness? And will you breathe into your people some reassurance of this? And maybe, in a way, cause the the fingers to loosen those grips that we have on our lives. Cause them to loosen and to relinquish. I guess in a different way, Lord, what I'm praying is will you you reign over us for your glory and for our good, for your honor and for our rest, for your worship and for our joy. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.